All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel and chapter 1 this morning. Quite some time ago, my wife and I decided to stop watching the evening news on television, the main reason being that it hardly ever was good news. All kinds of bad news is out in the world, and we're bombarded with it every day. We like to hear good news, as you probably do, but there's not a whole lot of it going on around the world today. But there's one place we can always find good news, and that's the Word of God. And that news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good tidings that our sins can be forgiven and that you can know God in a deep, personal way. That's what the four Gospels of the New Testament reveal to us as they tell us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, One of these books, uh, really all of these books in your Bible, you'll find are titled The Gospel, according to a certain author. But the only book that actually has the word gospel in its introduction is the Gospel of Mark, as he presents to us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we've learned, Mark does not give us a birth narrative of the Lord Jesus. It does not really fit with his purpose. So he jumps right in and gives the reader an introduction to the main feature of the gospel, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God. And this is something that uh, other characters in the narrative have to find out in the story of Christ. We have the advantage of foreknowledge, of knowing this ahead of time from the very first verse, what Mark's Christology is all about. So we have a great advantage. The first few verses of Mark briefly and succinctly introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ. And we have found that he presents Jesus as the servant of God, moving quickly from place to place, preaching, teaching, healing, and performing miracles. And his preparation for that ministry is outlined for us in the first 13 verses. Uh, First of all, his ministry is prepared through the uh, prophet John the Baptist, who prepares his coming by preaching a baptism of repentance. Then we see that he is prepared by his baptism, which signified the approval of God the Father on his Son. And finally, by his temptations, which proved his power to overcome the wiles of Satan. So today we're going to take a look at the first of these. But let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that you have written for us four descriptions of the life of Christ. And we pray, Lord, today that once again, we will be reminded that these are uh, your words. You've chosen select servants to write them down for us and given us a different perspective of Christ in each of them. So as we see him as the servant of God being prepared for his ministry, help us, Lord, to uh, learn more of him And Lord, apply the word of God to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So these first eight verses that we read, we see that the prophet of God is uh, preparing the way of the servant of God. And verse one, let's take a note uh, there of that again as the gospel is presented to us through the eyes of Mark. And he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, most of you know, as we mentioned earlier, that that word gospel means good news or good tidings. It was first used as a reward for the one who brought the good news. And then it came to mean the good news itself. And by the time that Mark wrote his gospel, the word was a technical term used for the preaching about Jesus Christ and God's saving power accomplished through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Um, The Apostle Paul really kind of conveys this in his first chapter of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles." And is what the Lord Jesus began to preach as he entered that ministry. We find this over in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he is preaching the gospel about himself and what he eventually will do to make the gospel what it is. This is also in fulfillment of Old Testament passages of scripture. For instance, in Isaiah 52, we read, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then in chapter 61 of Isaiah, this is something the Lord Jesus quoted of himself and identified with, said he was the fulfillment of, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan described the beauty of the gospel in this way. There is always music in the word, hope in it, comfort, uh, gladness in it. It is a variable song to cheer the heart and renew the courage, the gospel the good news. And all those who have received it know exactly what he means. Now, Mark introduces us to the beginning of the gospel in his life of Christ. Now, all things have a beginning, except, of course, for God, who is eternal. And the gospel, too, had a beginning in the coming of Christ to the earth. But Mark may be connecting the gospel to the very beginning of the Bible using this particular word, the beginning. That's what the apostle John does in his gospel as he wrote, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God going all the way back to creation. 
The Greek word that uh, Mark uses here is one that we find in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the same word is used there in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. So he's making a connection all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And we know in that story that the need of the gospel arose from the outcome of Adam and Eve's sin and its consequent curse of death. So the beginning of the gospel is actually hinted way back in Genesis. You remember chapter 3, verse 15, a promise was given to Adam and Eve of one who would come and would crush the head of Satan and end his rule over men. So we have a connection with what is coming into play now, the Lord Jesus coming into the world with the very beginning acts in uh, the book of Genesis. This new beginning for mankind is described in many Old Testament passages. We read a couple of them. And now is presented by Mark as being in a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's consider, uh, again, the significance of those names, those titles. First of all, Jesus is the human name of the Lord. It's derived from the Hebrew name Jeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or uh, Jehovah, the Lord saves. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament word Messiah, and it means the anointed one. So this is an official title indicating that Jesus was anointed by God to bring the gospel and establish the kingdom of God on earth. So naming him as the Christ He is saying, this is the Messiah of the Old Testament, and he's being fulfilled before your eyes right now. Then he mentions him as the Son of God. This refers to the nature of the servant being co-equal with God as the second person of the Godhead. It's not relating to Genesis or coming into being, but his position in the Godhead He becomes God in flesh to serve and save humanity by his work on the cross. And as we mentioned, this is Mark's Christology. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the God-man. We don't have to figure it out like the disciples did and the people of his day did. We know from the beginning exactly who it is he's writing about. Now, The Lord has sent someone to prepare the way of Christ's coming. And that was John the prophet. We we allude to him as John the Baptist. And we're told this in the next few verses. And Mark describes for us the mission, the ministry, the marks, and the message of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of the servant of God. So first of all, let's take a look here at his mission. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It is in fulfillment of God's prophetic word that this forerunner comes. And Mark 
compiles three Old Testament portions of Scripture to describe the mission of John the Baptist, who he identifies in verse 4. The first allusion may be from Exodus 23 and verse 20, where God promised Moses to send his angel, which means messenger in the Old Testament, before the people in the wilderness and lead them in the way. He wrote, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the peace which I have prepared. And then if you flip back to the last book of the Bible, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, this also seems to be connected to what uh, Mark writes about John. And incidentally, this is the only time in the whole gospel that Mark himself quotes the Old Testament. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there is a messenger of the covenant coming, and that messenger will have a messenger that precedes him. And so he's likely alluding to that passage as well. And then in John, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 40, verse 3, he almost uh, uh, completely quotes that passage. And so John's mission fulfills the prophecy of one preparing the way of the Lord who comes now in the person of Jesus Christ. And these prophecies, especially Isaiah, were written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Now, preparing the way alludes to the ancient custom of a king visiting a region, a country, a city under his control in his domain. And what he would do is he would send uh, a group of ambassadors ahead of him to check the conditions of the road, the way that he was going to travel, to make sure nothing would impede or delay his coming. Obstacles were removed, the road was repaired if necessary, so as to provide no hindrance for his arrival. The ambassadors also would go to the people of that region or city, and they would prepare the people for the coming of this great one as well, so that he would be well received. Now, John's mission was to proclaim to the people that a very special person was coming, of course, the Messiah. And he is the voice who cries out in the wilderness to herald that coming. And this verb, to cry out, alludes to a loud shout that could be heard from a distance. It was marked by intensity and great emotion. And uh, no doubt, this is one of the things that attracted the people to John's preaching. It was so much like they might have imagined a prophet of old doing. Now, John identifies Jesus as the one who would baptize them in the Holy Spirit. And in the apostle, John's gospel, he calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the baptizer prepares the way of the Lord by helping the people make way for him by receiving 
what he calls a baptism of repentance, which is the central focus of his ministry. So that is his main mission, to let people know this special person is coming. Now, verses 4 and 5 pertain to his ministry, what he does uh, to perform that mission. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So his activity, first of all, is that of baptizing people. What he did was so closely related to his ministry that he was actually called the baptizer, John the baptizer, and then the noun form would be John the Baptist the one uh, uh, who immersed people in the Jordan River as a sign of, of uh, being prepared to receive this coming individual. People would flock to this man. He would baptize them, and they would be prepared in mind and body for the coming of their Messiah. Now, this baptism, uh, like current baptism in the Christian church, did not save anyone or provide them the forgiveness of sin. It was an outward symbol of cleansing and preparation to receive the one who would eventually provide them with forgiveness. Now, his preaching is found in the second part of this verse, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Jesus will come preaching the gospel. John preaches repentance that was necessary to receive the gospel. Repentance is really the flip side of faith. Turn from your sin, that's repentance, to the Savior, that is faith. Before a person can be saved, they must be aware that they're lost in their sin. So repentance begins with a recognition of that lost condition, that you are a guilty sinner who has done things wrong in the eyes of a just and holy God, and you're deserving punishment for those sins. You've got to understand that this is what you are before things can change. But the main meaning of repentance is to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a willingness to confess sin and turn away from it. John's ministry was to make people aware of their sin and prepare their hearts to receive the one who would eventually give them forgiveness, provide the way to be forgiven. One commentator wrote, Repentance is more than grief or regret for sin. It is a deep change of mind and altered attitude towards sin, which has its proper fruit in a deliberate change of conduct for the better. So not just the right thinking, but thinking that affects action. Now, forgiveness means a sending away or a dismissal of sin. It meant cancellation of a debt, cancellation of sin without paying its deserved punishment. Indeed, that is good news because the punishment for sin is physical and eternal death. 
When a person received this baptism, it signified a a confession of their sinfulness, a desire to be forgiven, and a pledge to receive the Messiah. Another commentator wrote, it was a call for preparation for the arrival of the Lord's salvation. To participate in this baptism was a recognition of the need for God's forgiveness with a sense that one needed to live differently as a response to it. This is really a missing element in much preaching today. There's an easy believism that says you only need to put your faith in Jesus, you only need to confess him as the Son of God, and you will be saved. I heard someone not long ago on a newscast use this type of language, that you just need to confess the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, and you will be saved. Well, I believe this person was saved, and they meant well, and they didn't really have time in that slot to fully explain the gospel. Uh, You certainly do need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God to be saved, but the devil believes that. The devil certainly is not saved. It's necessary to believe this, but recognition and repentance of sin are also major components of saving faith. And we have to deal with the sin issue. Now, in verse 5, we see the influence of this ministry, this preaching of uh, John. And it says here, Then all the land of Judea... And those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So he had a great impact, a great influence on that region. Now Mark's words here are hyperbolic when he says that all the people came. Uh, Certainly not every single person came, but we use that that form of language to explain uh, the greatness of impact. It indicates that large numbers of people, most of the people came to him because they were stirred up by what they heard. And then they come and they, pre- they hear his preaching and they, they begin to confess their sins and prepare themselves for the coming of this person who he will de- identify as the Messiah. And imagine living in that period of time where you have not heard a prophet from God for over four centuries. And can you imagine the response that when people got news of this strange person out there in the wilderness, crying out, shouting out about a person who was going to come and offer forgiveness of sin, who was like Elijah of old, preaching in the wilderness, and this man's baptizing in the Jordan River, people began to flock to hear what he had to say. Now we may wonder what type of person John the Baptist was. So let's look at the marks of the prophet in verse 6. And Mark gives us a brief description as well as some of the other gospel writers. First of all, we find he was marked by simplicity. In verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Well, the garment that he wore 
uh, one made of camel's hair woven, woven together and tied at the waist with a rough leather belt wasn't really uh, in vogue as far as clothing of the day. Uh, most religious leaders were fashionably dressed. The belts that they wore were very lavish, usually ornated, uh, ornately decorated and adorned. His dress is in stark contrast to the indulgent, luxurious life of the priests, the Pharisees, and other rulers of the day. His garb was that of a holy man. In 2 Kings, the garment of Elijah, is just, he's described there, he's noticed a hairy man wearing a belt of leather around his waist. Now, it doesn't mean he was physically hairy. It meant his clothing was hairy. So he also was wearing this animal skin, and the people would have made a connection with that as they observed the, uh, the, uh, uh, John the Baptist preaching. His diet was not all that appealing either. Locusts and wild honey, not exactly a gourmet meal. And uh, our picky eaters at Sunday lunches would never stand for that. I probably wouldn't either. But this is something that uh, poor people, people of the desert regions, the wilderness, the arid regions, would actually eat with wild honey, which probably made it taste a little bit better. But again, here we find that he deprives himself of the finer things of life so that he could fulfill his ministry. That was his focus. Not the way he looked, not the things that he ate. He was a simple man proclaiming the way of the Lord. Secondly, he was marked by humility in verse 7. There comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose or untie. The clothing he wore, the diet he partook of portrayed humility, but his attitude here is displayed also very humble. John was a bold, mighty preacher of righteousness, as we shall see. But he realized the one he was proclaiming was far greater than he. He viewed himself as not even being worthy of untying the leather thong that kept, on, uh, kept his sandals on his feet. Now in that day, this was a lowly task only fit for slaves. The master of the house would never do that. A Jewish slave was not even required to do this. So John viewed himself lower than a slave in comparison to Jesus, the Son of God. But later, Jesus would commend John as the prophet that no one uh, had been greater than him. He was marked by courage as well. The verb to preach here means to proclaim as a herald publicly, authoritatively, and boldly. He didn't back down from strong preaching. Over in Matthew chapter 3, he denounced the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers. These were men who had the power, really, of uh, 
life and death of ostracizing you from the synagogue and things of that nature. Uh, yet he calls them a brood of vipers, poisonous snakes. In Matthew 14, he condemned Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife. This led to his eventual imprisonment and death. So his zeal for the Lord and his righteousness were apparent. And he was no mealy-mouthed preacher who spoke only what his audience wanted to hear. So he was a simple, humble man who spoke boldly the truth of God's righteousness. Now, the last couple of verses describe for us the message of the prophet. He states here that the one for whom he is preparing the way is mightier, more powerful than he is because of what he is going to do in the future. Now, again, John's work is preparatory. It's a baptism of water, signifying the cleansing of, uh, uh, from sin and, and forgiveness. But the baptism uh, would be useless if this person, the Messiah, did not complete the work necessary to provide or obtain the forgiveness which he symbolized. And so he says, the reason this one is mightier than I am is because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, when when John mentions that baptizing the Holy Spirit, the whole redemptive program of God is implied because he could not send the Holy Spirit until his saving work was accomplished. So he has to go to the cross to provide the perfect sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath against our sin. He has to be raised up from the dead to prove he has power over sin and over death and over hell. He must return back into heaven from whence he came where he will send the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his church, all those who believe in him. So this is where Mark's gospel is heading. The completed work of the servant of God that will provide forgiveness of sin and eternal life to everyone who places their faith in him. Now, from this aspect of the servant's preparation, we can draw a few applications. First of all, we are reminded that this is not some fairy tale that was made up by people in ancient history and somehow got preserved for us today. This is a true story about a real person from whose coming all time itself divides. It is is about the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, who came to save us. Therefore, the writing is reliable, it's trustworthy, we can believe it, and we can put our faith and trust in the one about whom it is written. Then, 
thinking about the ministry of John the Baptist, who was a herald of Christ's coming. We, we don't herald him the same way that John did. We don't have the same gifts that he did, but we can be used of God to show people the way of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, to prepare his way in an individual's heart. And we, pray, we prepare the way by answering questions they may have by living a life that is obviously separate from sin, by explaining the meaning of the gospel, sharing the good news with those who do not know him. And as we have opportunity to do that, well, our character should be similar to that of John. Not in every single way. I don't think we have to uh, uh, dress in camel's hair and eat locusts every day. But this is showing the simplicity of John and the humility and the courage. We, we, we don't need to be caught up in the latest fashions of the day, the latest gadgets and the attractions of the world. Those should not be the things that, that focus our life. Um, our lives should be as simple and un- uncomplicated as we can make them and focus on the, the, the Lord's mission in the world and bringing people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then by way of invitation this morning, are you among those who have repented of their sin and turned in faith to Jesus as your Savior? Do you recognize that you're a lost sinner, that you need the forgiveness of God? Well, if so, then the gospel of Christ is for you. And Jesus always invites us to come to him in repentance and faith that we might have the gift of forgiveness from our sin. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today for the truth of your word, for the reality of what is written about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged in our walk with you as we study its pages. And Lord, help us to take courage from the apostle, or excuse me, the, the uh, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ and had the job of introducing him to the nation of Israel as its Messiah. And we pray, Lord, you'll help us to uh, accept him if we have not already done so, And if we have, Lord, to be encouraged, to be uh, simple, humble, and courageous in our walk with you. And may we be uh, the New Testament, John the Baptist, so to speak, in uh, pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Bless us with these thoughts we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we close today, let's turn to number 306. And this is kind of an invitation hymn. I trust that most or all of us know the Lord, but if we don't, uh, this is just kind of an invitation to put our faith and trust in Him. Let's stand together as we sing a couple stanzas, number 306.
Help us, Lord, to proclaim your way as we have opportunity this week in Jesus' name.
start early. <laughs> 